Greetings, fiends and glad tidings. In keeping with a grand holiday tradition that has sadly gone out of style in recent years, we once again want to gather you all around the fire for a good scare. Close your eyes now and picture this. We are in a warm and cozy home, all of us together. The mantles are decked with evergreen boughs and holly. The air smells of cinnamon, oranges, wood fire, and pine. The hum of carols being played on an upright piano can be heard throughout the halls. The light is warm and old. It is candlelight and fires, shaded bulbs and twinkling ornaments. You have a warm cup of cider or hot chocolate in your hands, and it contrasts deliciously with the snow you see falling from your vantage point near a frosted window. There have been songs and a delicious meal. There were sweets and laughter and snowball fights and hugs. Now it is time to settle round the fire. Pick a spot. Everywhere is comfortable. There are soft chairs and a sofa, pillows and blankets heaped on the floor. Everyone piles in close enough to grab an arm if they need to and prepares to be taken in by their favorite ghost stories. Are you ready? Blanket around your shoulders, breath baited. Then let us begin our second edition of Scary Ghost Stories. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. and welcome back to our imaginary fireside. Although it's not imaginary now, is it? It is not. No, we have a fire in the fireplace. It's exciting. That is my opening from last year. I'm going to read it every year, spoiler alert. Yeah. Because it's a tradition and I like that. Puts us in the mood. Yeah, but I just kind of like manifested my own house in it though. It's perfect. Yeah, that's what. That's where we're sitting precisely. Like Christmas trees up. Yeah. Smells. It's comfortable everywhere. It is pretty comfortable everywhere. This is the new new comfy furniture. And uh, I, I guess I need to make it smell like oranges and stuff. Yeah, we need <laughs> to get the scent going a bit more. I know. I need to like make mold wine or something. And then, yeah, it, would, yeah. then it would smell just more like Just in a that. crock pot. So it's just going. <laughs> Listen, if they had a crock pot back then, that's what they would have used. Yeah. For, oh, for sure. Next for year. Sure. In, our, in our cereal year. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> then uh, then I'll have the smells going, too. Perfect. I'll finally get it right. Jeez. You'll get there. Yeah. This episode is our holiday gift to all of you. We decided we really liked the old English tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Mm. Something that, like, most Americans don't do. They do still do it in England. And, like, the BBC airs ghost stories and stuff on Christmas Eve. And that's where Christmas Carol came from. That is a Christmas ghost story. Right. The most famous of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, so we decided we would jump on the bandwagon and give you guys some scary ghost stories every year on Christmas Eve. Maybe you'll share them with your family. Great. Maybe you'll listen to them by yourself because you're tired of your family. Mm -hmm. All of these are acceptable options. Okay. Oh, and I'm not going to ask for anything really today because, mm -hmm. you know, this is our gift to you. Yep. However, if you have that feeling where you're like, well, you gave me something, I feel like probably should give you something too. Right, because we don't have any like rude fiends. I know, exactly. I know you guys all want to be mannerly. And, and if yeah. that's the case, you you can, if you uh -huh. like. Yeah, go, up to you. Yeah, go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. Mm -hmm. Or you could, for you know, a little monthly donation, support us on Patreon. Mm -hmm. It's like a nice charitable mm -hmm. act for the holidays, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. You'll feel better. Really, I want you to feel good. About supporting a small business during yeah. the holidays. All of this is about you. It guys. is about you in reality. Or, 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 or if you oh. want to look like really kind and generous to all your social media friends, mm -hmm. you could share any of our social media posts to your social media feed, or you could, um, I don't know, just post about when you're listening to us as mm -hmm. like a, a kind mm -hmm. act for the holiday season. 
any of that works. You could you could tell your friends because they probably need an escape, and this is a good one. Okay. You could tell your neighbors. Oh. They might need it too. Pam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pam. Definitely. We love Pam. She's the best neighbor. You mm-hmm. could you could tell um, your your FedEx driver. Oh. Yeah, because they are here all the time at Christmas. Okay. What's what's our FedEx driver's name? Klaus. Klaus. Like Claus. Santa Claus. <laughs> Santa Claus, bring me my Amazon Prime deliveries. Yeah. I guess that's its own truck now, but whatever. You get the picture. So, yeah, that's all of our business for today, I believe. I hope you enjoyed our live with all the all the many, many people that watched our live special. I hope you all enjoyed it this past mm-hmm. Friday. It was super fun. We had a great time. Yeah. We made the silliest TikTok the world has ever known. Oh, yeah. If you haven't seen the TikTok, go watch it and share it. It's on, Yeah. Please. which one is it on? Hollywood Be Dead? It's, yeah. Well, on TikTok, it's on mine, which is Hollywood Be Dead. But then we also shared it on our Instagram. It's mm-hmm. on our Facebook. Not this year, but the past year, we talked about the Mary Lloyd on um, our first Christmas special. And so this time we demonstrate it for you. Yeah. We sing so many songs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, go on over and watch that. And I think, yeah, that's and that's all the business for this year, I think. Okay. Do you have anything to add before we begin, Leslie? Um, no. 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 All right, then. On with the show. So um, I have a couple stories to tell you guys tonight by an author named M.R. James. Now, while they do not include, they're not like happening on Christmas or include the celebration of Christmas. However, they are an integral part of the Christmas tradition in Britain. M.R. James is like the ghost story author. His ghost stories are like the landmark of all ghost stories. He published several anthologies of them. One of them is called Ghost Stories of an Antiquary. Then there's more ghost stories of an antiquary, a thin ghost and others, a warning to the curious and other ghosts. Um, These are all beautiful hardback editions, and they are read with the express purpose of being read aloud on Christmas Eve. So that's what these stories' intention were. And so now the BBC filmed them in 2000 being read by Christopher Lee, which is great. In a candlelit room at King's College. Okay. So they play them every year. So if you would rather hear Christopher Lee read the actual Old Englishy text, you can find that. And if I can find a link, I'll, pl- I'll put it out there for you okay. guys because I think it's awesome. I am actually going to read um, a more modernized version of two of his stories. <laughs> I did start by reading the original, you guys. And I got like five pages in and I looked at Leslie and went, we can't do this to these people. I don't even know what the story is about. I, I'm going to be really excited for when she I know, retells it, it, and I'll be like, oh, this is good. There were <laughs> there were like 4,000 extra words. It was so, mm-hmm. so hard to understand. And I love the old flowery language. I have yeah. read Christmas Carol in its original form. Mm-hmm. I, I'm good with all of it, but the, trust me, you, you're going to want gonna want a little, <laughs> a little easier to understand version, and that's okay. So also little bit about M.R. James, whose actual name is Montague Rhodes James. Oh, that is such a good name. Isn't it a good name? That's like a romance novel yes. character. But you pointed out that maybe he just wanted to be... Mr. James. Mr. James. <laughs> Perhaps he was like, only formalities with me. Yeah. So I will be M.R. You will always address me as Mr. Yeah. Could we, be. It could. He could have just been like, it's too good not to have it this way. I mean, yeah. That's possible. James is method of storytelling is, is so classic and so defined that it, it has become its own genre. And they're called Jamesian mm-hmm. ghost stories. So the classic Jamesian tale includes three pivotal elements. One is a characterful setting in an English village, seaside town, or country estate, an ancient town in France, Denmark, or Sweden, or a venerable abbey or university. Two, it must include a nondescript and rather naive gentleman scholar as a protagonist, mm-hmm. often with a reserved nature. Three, the discovery of an old book or other antiquarian object that somehow unlocks, calls down the wrath, or at least attracts the unwelcome attention of a super, supernatural menace, usually from beyond the grave. Ooh. Yeah, so these like bullet points should kind of ring a bell because they really, there's a million other ghost stories that has taken this model and gone with it. Like you read The Turn of the Screw, Woman in Black, things like that, which are not written by M.R. James, but are precisely his model. Right. So yeah, these are these are pretty influential stories, and I'm going to read two uh, two stories that are listed as like his best and okay. most well known. 
I will start off with one called the ash tree. The action takes place at a large house called Castringham Hall and in nearby locations in Suffolk. Castringham Hall was originally built as a fortress in medieval times. Extensive alterations were made to it in the time of Queen Elizabeth I. It was at that time that an ash tree was planted in the house's grounds. So after they remodel it from a medieval fortress, an ash tree is planted on the grounds. The tree reaches its full height in the year of 1690. In that year, Castringham Hall is home to Sir Matthew Fell, the deputy sheriff of the district. The branches of the ash tree reach almost to Sir Matthew's bedroom window at this point. Mm -hmm. So it's a tree that has spread out in a grand manner. In the year 1690, a number of witch trials take place in the area. A woman named Mrs. Mothersoul is convicted of being a witch and hanged on the strength of evidence given by Sir Matthew. Sir Matthew says that through his bedroom window on three separate evenings, he saw Mrs. Mothersoul high in the branches of his ash tree using a strange curved knife to cut twigs from it. Sir Matthew tried to stop and capture Mrs. Mothersoul, but she heard him coming and managed to escape. Sir Matthew did not see her run away, but he saw a hare running across his garden toward the village. Sir Matthew is, quote, not specially infected with the witch-finding mania. He takes no pleasure in providing evidence against Mrs. Mothersoul or in her death sentence. He only speaks at her trial because he considers it his duty. This already makes way more sense than the last Yeah, one. the original version is real scary. <laughs> but they do mention in the original version that she's also kind of like beloved by the town. So people right. are very surprised and like not super happy with the fact that she's going to be hanged as a witch. Although he finds the whole process repugnant, as deputy sheriff, Sir Matthew is obliged to attend Mrs. Mothersoul's execution. Mm. The execution takes place on a wet day in March. Some six other people are also hanged that day. All of the other condemned prisoners are, quote, apathetic or broken down with misery. But Mrs. Mothersoul's behavior is quite different. Although she makes no attempt to stop the hangman from carrying out his duty, she appears to be extremely angry. Witnesses describe her as looking like a devil and her anger as poisonous. Strangely, the only words that Mrs. Mothersoul says on the day of her execution are, quote, there will be guests at the hole. Oh. Yeah. She repeats this seemingly meaningless phrase several times. Mm. There will be guests at the hole. There will be guests at the hole. A few weeks later, on a warm evening in May, while Sir Matthew's wife is away visiting her mother, Sir Matthew is visited by his friend, the local clergyman, Dr. Crome. When Dr. Crome is about to leave, Sir Matthew notices something moving in the ash tree. He does not think it is squirrel, Dr. Crome sees it too. It is impossible to tell what color it is by the moonlight, but it is unlikely to be a squirrel because it appears to have more than four legs. Hmm. The following morning, Sir Matthew is found dead in his bed. His body is twisted in agony. His flesh is bloated and his skin has turned black. Although Sir Matthew left his bedroom window open, there are no signs of an intrusion. A full tankard of ale is found in his room because it was his custom to drink a small silver glass of ale before bed. Although that night, Sir Matthew did not drink from the tankard. Its contents are examined and it is found to contain no poison. Some women who are charged with preparing Sir Matthew's body for burial, so they would be washing his body and like arranging him, mm -hmm. feel a sharp pain in the palms of their hands the second they touch him. Soon afterwards, their arms become swollen and they are unable to work for a long time afterwards. Dr. Crome and the local physicians examine Sir Matthew's body with a magnifying glass. They find two small puncture wounds. The two men think that the puncture wounds may have been left when the poison was injected into Sir Matthew's body. In search of some comfort, Dr. Crome picks up a small Bible on Sir Matthew's bedside table. Three times he opens it at random and reads the words to which his finger randomly points. He reads, quote, cut it down, quote, it shall never be inhabited, and quote, her young also suck up blood. Mm. Castringham Hall is inherited by Sir Matthew's son, the second Sir Matthew. 
the second Sir Matthew finds that a lot of his sheep and cattle die from mysterious illnesses. He finds that his animals remained untouched by the disease if he keeps them inside at night. Wild animals and birds that have died of the mysterious sickness continue to be found in the grounds of Castringham Hall. In 1735, Castringham Hall is inherited by Sir Richard Fell, the second Sir Matthew's son. Sir Richard had traveled in Italy and has Castringham Hall altered to make it look more like an Italian palace. He also has the parish church extended in order to install a new pew for himself and his family. This requires exhuming several bodies from the graves in the unhallowed ground north of the church. One of the graves that is disturbed is that of Mrs. Mothersoul. When her coffin is opened, it is found to be completely empty. On Sir Richard's orders, the coffin is burned. One night in 1754, shortly before a large number of guests are due to arrive in Castringham Hall, Sir Richard is unable to sleep because something keeps rattling against his bedroom window. The following morning, he decides to move to a different bedroom. Of the many empty rooms available, he finds that the former bedroom of the first Sir Matthew, unused for over 40 years, is the only one that suits his needs. The bedroom window has to be opened to let some fresh air into the stuffy room. Sir Richard admits that the proximity of the ash tree to the bedroom might make it damp. On the same day, Sir Richard is visited by William Crome, the grandson of Dr. Crome. William Crome shows Sir Richard the account that his grandfather wrote of the first Sir Matthew's death. Sir Richard is much amused by Dr. Crome's attempt to learn something by opening a Bible and pointing to words in it at random. He thinks, however, that, quote, cut it down is good advice if it refers to the diseased old ash tree. Finding the first Sir Matthew's old Bible, Sir Richard jokingly attempts to do exactly what Dr. Crome had done before him. And he reads the words, quote, Thou shalt seek me in the morning, and I shall not be. Hmm. The following day, Sir Richard is talking to one of his guests, the Bishop of Kilmore, an Episcopal see in Ireland. The bishop notices a bedroom window which is very near to the branches of the ash tree. He says that none of his parishioners would sleep there because, according to Irish folklore, it is considered highly unlucky to sleep near an ash tree. Sir Richard says that the bedroom is his and that he did not sleep well the night before because the ash tree branches were scratching against his window. The bishop points out that it is impossible because the nearest branch on the tree is a foot away from the bedroom window. The bishop says that the scratching noise must have been made by something else. That night, Sir Richard's bedroom is visited by several, quote, brown and brownish creatures. One of them, quote, drops off the bed with a soft plump like a kitten and is out of the window in a flash. The following morning, Sir Richard is found dead in his bed, exactly like the first Sir Matthew before him. His body is twisted in agony, his flesh is swollen, and his skin has turned black. While the other guests are discussing how and why Sir Richard might have been murdered, the Bishop of Kilmore looks to the ash tree. A cat peers into a hole in the hollow tree. It falls in the hole and then lets out a horrible cry. It is decided that the tree must be examined at once. A gardener with a lantern climbs a ladder and looks into the hollow tree. What he sees makes him drop his lantern in fright. The broken lantern starts a fire which sets the ash tree alight. Several gigantic spiders, as large as a man's head, come out of the burning tree. The tree continues to burn for the rest of the day. Several people stay near to the tree and kill the enormous spiders as they emerge from it. When no more spiders have appeared for some time, the burned remains of the hollow tree are examined. A few more dead spiders are found inside along with a body which can only be that of Mrs. Mothersome. guests at the hall. I don't like it. And they were all spiders. Ew. Although I do like referring to a noise as a plump. Yeah. <laughs> that's adorable. You made a plump like that of a kitten falling. Oh, because that's what would make a plump. <laughs> yeah, if you put a kitten on a bed, it would just go plump. plump. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. All right. So that was the ash tree. Let's, how about you favor us with a tail now? Sure. Okay. Mine is called The White Raven Ooh. by Dick Donovan. Also a good name. Yes. 
<laughs> Dick Donovan. Dick Donovan. <laughs> was, um, oh, I was watching something recently and they were, they were like trying to edit, I don't know, some TV show and they were like, we can, oh, it was 30 Rock. <laughs> I love 30 Rock. And Kenneth was like in, he was doing like a different job. Uh, for a little while. Oh, and he didn't have his jacket, too, and he was, like, freaking out? It was after. It was, oh, like, okay. he wanted to quit, I oh, think, no. and they were trying to find, like, another position for him. Mm-hmm. And so he was, like, working in this other department, and he was just like, we can't put the name Dick Wolf on, <laughs> on <laughs> television. <laughs> I, like, lost it. Oh, no. <laughs> Kenneth Parcell is a national treasure. He is, he is. Character and the actor. Yeah. Oh, Jack McBray. Okay. <laughs> so my story is from 1899. It is in the Old English, but it was much easier than your original. (laughs) The original version of the story I just told was 18 pages of no punctuation Mm -hmm. and a lot of words that I couldn't even wrestle with. And I'm pretty good with words. Yeah. Okay. The White Raven by Dick Donovan. The story as told by Lydia Stansby. Oh. It was generally said of my father, who was a son of the late Sir John Mark Stansby, that he was somewhat of an oddity. He certainly had original ideas, and it was a favorite remark of his that he did not care to baa because the great family of human sheep baaed in chorus. (coughs) (laughs) That got you. (laughs) Who is the great family of human sheep? I think just people that follow. Oh, okay. That was, I was my thinking, idea. I was thinking like like sheep that walk on two legs. I was just thinking like followers. Guys, I've had such a long week. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> just walking around buying like people. Yeah. No. It was due, no doubt, to this faculty of originality that he became the owner of Moreland Grange, which was situated on the edge of the wild Dartmoor. My father was a widower. I was his only daughter. But I had four brothers, and I doubt if any girl's brothers were more devoted to her than mine were to me. We were a very united family, and had for many years resided in London. And as my father had ample means, we found life very enjoyable. Mm. I was considered to be an exceedingly fortunate young woman. My friends all too flatteringly told me I was beautiful, and I know that when I looked into my mirror, the reflection that met my gaze was certainly not one to make me shudder. (laughs) I love this girl. She loves herself. Of course, this was vanity, but then that is a woman's especial privilege, and so I don't intend to make any apology for that remark, for I am quite sure that I never was a plain-looking girl. Okay. Get it, Lydia. I know, right? When my father purchased Moreland Grange, I was just turned 20 years of age and was looking forward with eager pleasure, what girl does not, to my marriage with one of the dearest and most devoted of men. His name was Herbert Wilton. Oh, Herbert. By profession, he was a civil engineer, and for some time he had been in the Brazils surveying for a new line of railroad which an English company had undertaken to construct. Herbert's engagement had nearly expired, and we were to be married on the New Year's Day following his return. My father had some relatives in Devonshire. He was exceedingly fond of that part of the country, and on one occasion, after having been on a visit there, he said, Lydia, how would you like to go and live in Devonshire? I told him that heartedly anything could give me greater pleasure, and then he astonished me by telling me that he had bought one of the queerest tumble-down, romantic, ghost-haunted old houses imaginable. I know. (laughs) It was known as Moreland Grange, and he had got it for, as he said, an old song, and as it had been without a tenant for 25 years. The cause of this was, as I learned, mainly attributable to an evil reputation it had acquired, owing to a remarkable murder that had been committed in the house at some remote period. That at least was the current legend, and it certainly affected the interest of the owners of the property. It was another instance of the truth of the adage about giving a dog a bad name. This house had got a bad name, and the people shunned it as they might have shunned a leper. For some time, the estate had been in chancery. 
and as no purchaser could be found for it, my father had been able to secure it at a ridiculously low figure. And he intended, as he told me cheerfully, to purge it of its evil reputation. Well, all right. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, only the best for my daughter. It's <laughs> at a very This was perfect for you because it's a very low price. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at this time, only my two younger brothers, who were mere boys, were at home, the others being in India. And so they, my father and I, with three servants, started for Moreland Grange, so as to get it in order as we intended to reside there permanently. The time of year was April, and the nearest station to the Grange was Travistock, where we arrived about five in the afternoon on as wild, bleak, and windy a day as our fickle and varying climate is capable of giving us even in tearful April. From the station, we had a drive of over three miles. My father had deputed an old man named Jack Beaudly, to meet us with a trap. Jack had been promised work on our new estate as handyman, woodcutter, or anything else in which he could be useful. He had nearly reached the allotted Spain and was gnarled and twisted like an ancient oak, born and bred in the neighborhood of Dartmoor. He had never been 50 miles away from his native place in his life. He was a blunt, rugged, honest, rustic, very superstitious, and very simple. And as soon as he saw me, he exclaimed as he opened his bleared old eyes to their fullest capacity, By gloom, miss, but you be powerful handsome. I hope as we you won't be seeing of the white raven in thou'd grange. <laughs> I'd have no idea how else to do his voice, but that is... By gloom, miss! Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to use that phrase, though. This compliment made me blush. I don't know how, because I don't know what he said. <laughs> like a ratchety old man. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> thank you thank so you much, so much. <laughs> And I asked him what the white raven was, whereupon he looked very melancholy and answered, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be the chap to make your pretty face white with fright. So don't ye ask me, please. As I was in no way a nervous or superstitious girl, I was amused rather than otherwise at old Jack's mysterious air, and I did not question him further then, as I felt pretty sure when we had become better acquainted, he would be more communicative. We reached the Grange after a very cold and windy drive. The day was done, but there was just light enough lingering in the angry sky to outline the place in ghostly silhouette. It was a house of many gables, with all sorts of angles and projecting eaves, and a grotesque gothic porch that was approached by a flight of steps with stone balustrades. The whole building was covered with a mantling of dense ivy, which obstructed the windows and hung down in ragged streams that swayed and rasped mournfully in the chill wind. All around were gloomy woods, and the garden was a forlorn wilderness of rank weeds. Old Jack's wife had got a few of the rooms cleaned out for our immediate use, and some furniture had been sent in, so that we were enabled to make ourselves tolerably comfortable on this first night in our strange abode. I love that. Tolerably comfortable. Yeah, we weren't uncomfortable (laughs) in the two rooms cleaned out in this old, filthy mansion. Yeah. Nice. The next day I set to work with my brothers to explore the house, and soon I was quite able to endorse my father's opinion that it was the queerest, oddest, most romantic, and ghostly place imaginable. Yeah. I have already said that I was neither nervous nor superstitious, but I honestly confess that the rambling, draughtry, echoing building quite depressed me. The Grange was said to be over 400 years old, though in some respects it had been modernized. Nevertheless, it was full of surprises in the shape of nooks and corners, deep, dark recesses, strange angles, dimly lighted passages, winding staircases, and wainscoted and raftered rooms. One of these rooms was long and narrow, tapering away at one end almost to a point. The walls were wainscoted right to the ceiling, and the ceiling itself paneled with oak. There was a wide-open fireplace and a very massive carved mantel. Two diamond-paned windows lighted the room, one of the windows being filled in with blue and red glass. 
but at this time the windows were so obscured by the hanging ivy that we had to cut it away to let in the light. I became greatly interested in this antique chamber, and in a spirit of fun and ridicule, I at once dubbed it the Haunted Chamber. Creative. And declared I would use it as my bedroom. Oh. Because it was like the nicest one. You know, she was like, yes. But haunted. But haunted. She was just joking around with old Jake. (laughs) You know. Afterwards, when talking about it to my father, I said laughingly, If that room pa hasn't got a ghost, it will have to have one, and we must invent one for it. Aww. Oh, he added, according to old Jack Beadley, that's the room where White Raven shows itself. Oh. A little later, I went to Jack, who was busy trying to clear some of the weeds away from the long-neglected grounds, and I said to him, Look here, Beadley, what's this story about the White Raven? Come now, you must tell me. He paused in his work leaned his grizzled chin on the handle of his spade, and as a scared look spread itself over his shriveled face, he answered me thus, There be some folk in these parts, miss, as vow they've seen the white waven, and thou doest say as how them sees it dies within the week, but I don't know if them as as said they've seen it died or not. (laughs) What is that character? I don't know, but that's just how the words are in. The white waven. The white waven. Oh, no. Have you seen it, Jack? I asked, trying to look very serious, though I could scarcely keep from laughing. Noah, Noah, thank God, Noah. (gasps) He exclaimed with startling earnestness and mopping his bald head with his red handkerchief, although the weather was cold while his tan and weathered beaten cheeks seemed to me to become pale. Then he asked, have you been in what we folk call the old chamber? Ugh. Guessing what room he referred to, I told him that I had, and he at once said that it was in that chamber that the mysterious white raven always showed itself to the doomed person. Uh-oh. Of course I was incredulous and ridiculed the whole idea, nor can I say I was more deeply impressed when, on a subsequent and more critical examination of the chamber, I found the following doggerel carved in Old English on one of the panels. The stranger who beneath this roof shall lie, and sees the white raven is sure to die, for a curse rests on the unhallowed place, and the blood that was shed you here may trace so, stranger, beware, sleep not in the room, lest you should meet with a terrible doom. Ugh. From people in the neighboring villages, I learned that in this very room, which I had been prompted to call the haunted chamber, tradition said that at some distant period, a very beautiful lady had been brutally done to death by a jealous and dissipated husband who gave out that she had eloped. He allowed her body to fester and molder away in the room, and many years afterwards her skeleton was found, and that since then she had haunted the place in the shape of a white raven, while to anyone to whom she appeared it was a fatal sign, but why that should have been so nobody attempted to explain. Now, I will honestly confess that the gruesomeness of the story, which, however, I did not believe in its entirety, so far affected me that I changed my mind about occupying the room myself, and my father said that he would take it for his own bedroom, but he also, for some reason or other, did not occupy it, although it was made into the most luxurious sleeping apartment. In the course of a few weeks, the Grange began to present a very different appearance, and where gloom and melancholy had reigned, a cheerfulness and light spread themselves. Under the fostering care of three or four gardeners, the gardens blazed with flowers. Some of the timber that encroached too much on the house was cut away, and the windows of the building were cleared of the ivy. I came at last to love the old place, for it was so bizarre, so unlike anything else I had ever seen. And in spite of all the predictions and croakings of the ignorant peasantry around about, who declared that sooner or later the curse which had affected everyone who ever lived there since the poor lady was murdered would affect us, we were very comfortable and very happy. The summer lingered long that year, but the autumn was short and the winter set in with quite startling suddenness. By the end of the first week in December, snow began to fall 
and it continued snowing more or less for several days until the country roundabout was buried. During all the year I had been pining for my love, who came not, although I knew that he was on his way home, but he had remained in Brazil longer than he intended, owing to the death from yellow fever of one of the surveying party, so that Herbert had to be induced to renew his engagement for another six months to do the dead man's work. With painful suspense and anxiety, I had for days been scanning the papers for a report of the vessel which was bearing him to me, for he was overdue, but the weather at sea had been fearful, and old seamen said that vessels making from the channel would have a hard time of it. As she was to call at Plymouth, I persuaded my father to take me there in order that we might welcome Herbert as soon as ever he touched English soil again. As Papa denied me nothing, he readily consented to this. But it was not until three days before Christmas that the welcome news came to me that the vessel had entered the sound. Need I dwell upon the joy I experienced when, after our long separation, I felt Herbert's dear arms around me once more? How handsome and manly he looked. The sun had tanned him brown and the fine sea voyage home had braced him up after the enervating Brazilian climate, and he declared that he had never been in better health in his life. He was possessed of a wonderful constitution, and during the whole time he had been in Brazil, he had never had a day's illness. Of course I told him that, selfish as it deemed, I was going to keep him for Christmas, and on New Year's Day, I was to become his bride, according to the long prior arrangement. He said that it was necessary for him to go to London to see his friends, and to make some preparations, but he promised that he would be with me again on Christmas Eve, and so I parted from him, and as we were to meet again soon, and in less than a fortnight, he was to be my husband, and I was verily at that moment one of the happiest girls alive. Oh no. As my father was thoroughly imbued with the spirit of old-fashioned English hospitality, he generally kept open the house at Christmas time. And this being our first Christmas at the Grange, we had a large number of visitors, so that the house was quite full. Everyone came to our big haunted house. In order that Herbert, when he came, might be fittingly bestowed as the bridegroom-elect, we decided <laughs> that, he should that he should accompany the haunted chamber. Why? What? Why would you put him in there? I don't know. That's a terrible idea. For it certainly was the best sleeping room in the house, and though some silly and unusual nervousness, as I believe then, had prevented my occupying it as I intended, neither I nor my father attached the slightest importance to the supernatural stories current in the district. With my own hands, I arranged the room for Herbert, filling it with knick-knacks and odds and ends and everything I could think of that was likely to give him pleasure or add to his comfort so that it was more or less non-tolerable, but actually comfortable. <laughs> I added that. <laughs> Perfect. Christmas Eve of that year was marked by a snowstorm such as, the country people said, had not been known for 40 years. <gasps> the train that brought my love from London was very late, and I had become quite anxious, but all anxiety was forgotten when I helped him divest himself of his snow-laden topcoat in the hall, and taking me in his arms, he kissed me in his hearty, cheery way. We were a very jovial party, and that night was a happy, gladsome night, the memory of which will never leave me. Nor shall I ever forget dear Herbert's words as he kissed me goodnight on the stairs as the great hall clock struck one. Darling little woman, he whispered, what joy, what happiness, what ecstasy to think that in a week's time you will belong to me. Oh, Herbert. Oh, Herb. I had no words. I could only sigh in token of a supreme happiness that filled my heart to overflowing. Christmas morning broke bright, clear, and beautiful. The snow had ceased to fall, and a hard frost had set in. It was a veritable Canadian weather, crisp, crystalline, and invigorating. As soon as breakfast was over, Herbert took me on one side and said, You know, Lydia, I am about one of the most practical men that you could find in a day's march, and hitherto I have been without, as I believe, a scrap of superstition in my composition. But by Jove, after last night's experience, I'll be hanged if I don't believe with Shakespeare that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. At these words I turned deadly pale. 
I scarcely knew why, but which was the case, and I gasped out. What do you mean? Well, he answered with a laugh that wasn't sincere, for it was obviously forced. I believe that room in which I slept is positively haunted. Well, it's called the haunted chamber. I don't know that she called it that to him. Oh, okay. Now, I may state here that not a word of any kind had been mentioned to Herbert about the stories that were current with regard to the house. Ah. Both my father and I resolved that the subject sh- should be strictly avoided so that none of our lady guests might be alarmed. <laughs> lady guests? As he spoke, I looked up into the brown face and I saw that it was filled with a puzzled and troubled expression, while his splendid eyes had an unusual expression in them. Tell me, I said quickly, what did you hear? What did you see? Oh, don't let us talk about it, he answered lightly. Perhaps after all, I have simply been dreaming. Yes, yes, tell me, you must you must tell me, Herbert. Ugh. I exclaimed. You know that I'm a strong nerved. <laughs> Obviously. He seemed to hesitate, but laughing again, though it was the same force laughed, he said, Well, the fact is, if I ever I saw a raven in my life, I saw one last night. Only, it was white. Ooh. At this, I almost fainted, and he caught me by the arm. I made a desperate effort, however, and recovered myself. Go on, tell me all about it. And the sum of the substance of what he told me was this. He had seen a white raven, or what appeared to be a white raven, flying around and round the room. It made no noise, which amazed him, and as he confessed, startled him. He tried to catch this mysterious and noiseless bird, but it had no substantiality. It was an airy phantom. But once or twice, when he appeared to grasp it, a deep groan and sigh broke upon his ears. Although a strange fear seemed to turn my heart cold, I endeavored not to show it, nor could I bring myself to tell my lover of the tradition so common all over the countryside about the murdered lady and the white raven. If the extraordinary apparition had any real effect on Herbert, he soon shook it off, and his hearty ringing laughter made music in the house, and his eyes were filled again with the old look of love with which they always greeted me. It had been arranged that the gentlemen were to form a shooting party to go out on to the moor and try and bag some wild ducks. At first I was disposed to dissuade Herbert from going, ah, with that I had done so, but it seemed to me weak and foolish. Moreover, he was so anxious to go for the novelty of the thing, and so I whispered in his ear as we were standing on the steps, Take care of yourself, love, for my sake. Oh. Of course I will, darling, and you do the same, he said cheerily. I watched his manly form. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Lydia. Lydia. <laughs> I watched his manly form until he was hidden from my sight by the trees. He looked splendid in his perfect health, and his magnificent physique was set off to every possible advantage by the superb coat of Russian sable that he wore. Jesus how proud I felt of him, for truly B was a man to be proud of. <laughs> Jesus, that is a horny old-timey lady. My God, she loves it. She's like in her 20s. She is feeling herself. <laughs> uh, yeah, for real. Three hours later, the party returned, minus Herbert. Oh, no. They said he had got separated from them in some way, and they quite thought he had come back. Although a sense of something being wrong overcame me for the moment, I tried to think that it was simply nervousness. Of course, the gentlemen at once hurried back to the moor, and when they came again, they brought my lover mangled and shattered, (gasps) and, as it seems then, in the agony of death. Oh my God, how awful it was. I thought I should have gone raving mad. It appears that Herbert had been found in a hollow, whither he had fallen by the breaking away of the snow under his feet. In his fall, he had not only fractured an arm in some of his ribs, but his gun had gone off full in his face, and besides disfiguring him frightfully, had destroyed both his eyes. It can be imagined what a terrible shock it was to the household, and how the joy and mirth were turned to lamentations and moaning. Doctors were procured, but they pronounced the sufferer's condition as critical. They left us no room to hope that the sight would be restored under any circumstances. I'm just, like, amazed that he's alive. Yeah, he's not dead. Yeah, he shot himself in the face. Yeah, he should be dead. It is old-timey times, too. It's not like they were immediately like, oh, well, we can do some microsurgery and help you. No. Right. 
Ugh, wild. Ah, what a fearful dark Christmas that became to me. I think in my agony of mind I cursed my fate, my God, and how I hated the house and shuddered as I thought of the horrible room where my beloved had seen the strange apparition of the white raven. Up to a short time previously, it would have been difficult to have found a girl more skeptical than I was about anything that savored of superstition. But now I was filled with a strange dread and feared my own shadow. When I saw old Jack for the first time after the accident, he said to me, Is it true, miss, that Mr. Wilton's been asleep in the haunted room? Yes, Jack, it is, I answered in heartbroken tones. Then maybe he's seen the white raven? He has, I replied, whereupon I thought the old man would have fallen down in a, a fit. So scared did he seem, and he mumbled out, God bless us and preserve us all. I wouldn't sleep in that room, miss, not if Queen Victory was to give me her golden crown. That there room, miss, ought to be shut up, and no one ever allowed to go a night in it again. The shadow that had so suddenly and cruelly fallen upon us rendered the Christmas festivities out of the question, and most of the guests sorrow sorrowfully departed the following day. Many long weeks ensued dark, torturing weeks to me, for my love one was suspended, and as it were, by a single hair over that profound abyss into which all living atoms finally fall, and from which no sound ever comes to break the mystery. But if they were dark weeks to me, how much, how in infinitely, how unspeakably darker to him who, in the pride of his manhood, had been deprived of the power of ever again beholding the wonders of God's creation. Mm. And yet he murmured not, not uttered complaint nor groan. To me, the one consolation I had in this hideous calamity was being near him, being able to tend to him and hear his voice, which had lost none of its old cheerfulness. Slowly, very slowly, as the summer drifted by, he began to regain some of his lost strength, and we led him out beneath the trees and into the sunlight, though it was ever, ever night to him, for not a glimmer of vision remained, and as I looked at his sightless orbs and his maimed and torn face, from which no human power could banish the cruel and ghastly scars, I hated the Grange with a hate that hath no words." Mm. One day, he asked to be taken to where my father was, and putting his arm in mine, we entered my father's presence. Mr. Stansby, he began with an attempt at a smile, I am not quite the same man I was when I came here last Christmas, but in my misfortune, an angel has watched over me in the person of your daughter, who, but for this mishap, would now have been my wife. She has brought me out of the shadow, out of the grave, and I owe a duty to her no less than to you. The duty is to release her from all promises and vows and leave her perfectly free to bestow her heart on someone who is whole and sound. I am now but a battered wreck, and all I can hope for is to break up soon and drift away into the great and mysterious ocean of eternal silence. But let me ask you, sir, to see to it that the man upon whom you bestow your daughter is as near perfection as a man may come. For no more perfect woman than she is walks the world. I have nothing more to add further than, in such poor words as well up from my stricken heart, to thank you for your hospitality. Oh, this, they're like a match made in heaven, these mm -hmm. two. They're just <laughs> so dramatic. <laughs> He had tried so hard to be strong and collected and show no sign of the awful despair that was crushing him. But is the man born who could go through such an ordeal unmoved? His lips quivered, his voice grew weak, and something like a spasm caught his breath. My own eyes were filled with blinding, scalding tears, and my heart fluttered like the wing of a bird in pain. Gliding over to where he stood, I placed my arms about his neck, and laying my cheek against his scarred face, I found a voice to say to my father, who was also deeply affected and moved, Father, the man who Herbert would have you choose for me need be sought no further than this room. He is here. My heart beats to his heart, my face pressed to his face. <laughs> my father came to us. He laid one hand on Herbert's shoulder and the other on my head, and thus he spoke. 
A woman's love that clings not to a man when calamity overtakes him is worthless. Freely do I bestow her upon you, Herbert, if it is her wish and your wish that you should be united. My husband, I murmured as I clung closer to him, <laughs> and it was my only answer. Herbert tried to persuade me that it was to my happiness and my interest to abandon him, but he might as well have tried to convince the winds of heaven that they should not blow. Oh my God. <laughs> Externally, the Herbert as I had first known him had changed. His handsome face was handsome no longer. Oh, come on. And his wondrous eyes were sightless forever. But his heart was the same. What could change that the bravest, truest, tenderest that had ever beat in a man's breast? My God. And so ere the next Christmas had dawned, I was Herbert's wife. And soon after that, my father abandoned the accursed Grange to the gloom and the silence of the melancholy from which he had reclaimed it. And a little later, it was burned to the ground. We... <laughs> Yes. Yes. We burned it. We never knew how the fire originated, but it was generally supposed that some of the superstitious people in the neighborhood willfully set it alight under the impression that the place was accursed by the spilling of human blood should no longer be allowed to encumber the earth. We don't know how it happened, but but I think like. Some of the neighbors might have set it on yeah, fire. Because, like, human were, blood was spilled and they were like, this can't be here. This they were like, dark spirit. Mm, poor Herbert. Yeah. Let's burn the house down. When I heard of its destruction, I confessed that I rejoiced. And I said to myself, never again will the white raven bring calamity to a household as it has brought to ours. Mm. For five years, I walked with my husband in his darkness and let him see the world through my eyes. Two children blessed, literally blessed, our union, a girl and a boy. But my beloved husband never fully recovered from the shock of the awful accident on the dark and memorable Christmas day. And though he uttered no moan, his blindness preyed upon his mind and a short brief illness took him from me. For long years, the grass has waved over his grave. Other men have praised my face and sought my hand. Because remember, I'm like really beautiful. Super hot. But to all I have turned a deaf ear. For my love was buried in Herbert's grave. But in my son, the father lives again. And when I gaze upon his handsome face oh, and no. splendid figure, oh, uh-uh. I feel that God is very good and that he chastens us to make us more perfect in his sight. Oh, Lydia. I know. It's like, I think, are you going to like date your son? get weird now? <laughs> All right. That was my story. That is a romance novel ghost story. It was, story. yeah. Okay. Oh, man. Um, I had to look it up. There are white ravens are a thing. Yeah. They're really pretty. Mm-hmm. Even their beak is white. They're like all white. Mm, a little albino raven. They're not albino. They're leucistic, apparently. Okay. So that means they don't have like red eyes and red skin. They still have normal colored like feet oh, okay. and eyes. Some of them have blue eyes, actually. Um, pretty. Yes, yeah, super pretty. They're that beautiful. Be... But they are like historically and mythologically said to be really terrible luck. Yeah. Okay. So that makes that sense. Makes sense. Yeah. This book was pulled from like a Yuletide Frightenings book. Oh, very nice. Well, that was fun. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So I have one more Miss, Mr. James story. And this one is widely, widely listed as his best and most well-known. And it is called, in a very brief, easy to say name, Oh, whistle, and I'll come to you, my lad. (laughs) Professor Parkins of St. James College has planned a golfing vacation for himself. He will be staying at the Globe Inn in the village of Burnstow on the East Coast. He plans to do some work between golfing, so he has reserved a large room at the inn. A colleague asks him to take a look at the nearby site of the Templar's preceptory to see if it is worth excavating. Another colleague named Rogers, upon hearing the room has two beds, decides to tease the young professor by offering to join him and keep the ghosts off. Nice. Parkins, a serious man and an outspoken rationalist, politely but firmly refuses to joke about ghosts. Ghosts are no joke. Right. Lest he give credence to such unscientific beliefs. Yeah, don't, don't even joke about it. Don't be doing it. Parkins arrives at the Globe the next day 
and settles into his large room. Before retiring, he sets up his work area in the outer side of the room, which faces the sea and has windows on three sides. He spends the following day playing golf with another guest at the inn, Colonel Wilson. The Colonel grows ill-tempered in the afternoon, so Parkins decides to walk over to the beach to look for the ruins rather than return to the inn with him. Parkins stumbles onto the ruins on the way to the Shingle Beach. The broken ground is covered with depressions and mounds, with the foundation of the preceptory still largely intact at shallow depth. Remembering that the Templars built round churches, Parkins looks around and spots a circular formation of the mounds. To the east of the center of the circle is an oblong eminence, which appears to be the base of an altar. He scrapes away some earth with his knife and discovers a small rectangular cavity in the masonry. Parkins puts his hand in the hole and finds an old metal tube about four inches long. He puts the artifact in his pocket before heading back to the inn for dinner. Parkins goes through the shingles to the sandy strip of beach and walks briskly, going over the wooden groins every few yards. Now, a groin is not like your human groin. Okay. It's like a pier. It's like a long, slatted wooden thing that goes from the beach out into the ocean. Like, you can take a walk out on to them. It's a pier. Okay. Basically. You walk out onto the groins. Just take a walk on the groins. Nice. And I really was like, it can't be pronounced groins. It's spelled G-R-O-Y-N-E-S. And it most certainly is pronounced groins. So he's going over the wooden groins every few yards. He looks back once and sees someone following him at a distance. The man seems to be running, yet does not appear to be making much progress. Although company would be welcome on the lonely beach, Parkins decides not to wait as he is running late for dinner. He finds Colonel Wilson in a better mood back at the Globe, and they play bridge together after dinner. It is nearly midnight by the time Parkins retires to his room. Parkins had forgotten about the artifact earlier in his rush to dress for dinner. Now he examines it in the candlelight and sees that it is made of bronze and shaped like a dog whistle. He tries to blow on it, but finds it caked with dirt on the inside. Ew, don't put that in your mouth. <laughs> he takes out his knife and cleans out the dirt carefully over a piece of paper. Then he opens the window to throw out the dirt. The night is clear, and he is surprised to see at such a late hour a figure on the shore in front of the inn. He closes the window and takes a closer look at the whistle. It is inscribed on two sides in Latin. Fur fla flebis on one side. And Beautiful. I know. And kis est east qui venit on the other. I know no Latin. That's what you get. Parkins is unsure of the meaning of the first inscription, but it translates the second as, quote, Who is this? Who is coming? Mm. Parkins blows on the whistle tentatively. The note, although soft, appears to reach infinite distances. It also causes him to have a vision of a dark, windy expanse with a lonely figure in its mist. The vision is broken by a sudden gust of wind against the window. Parkins blows on the whistle again, more boldly this time. But the sound is no louder, and no vision follows. The wind gust is so strong that it now blows the window open and blows out the candles. Parkins struggles to close the window. The pressure is so great that it feels like a burglar trying to force his way in. Then suddenly, it slackens, and the window bangs shut. Parkins relights the candles and examines the room. Fortunately, there are no damages. The wind continues to blow, and Parkins has trouble getting to sleep. As he lies awake, he hears someone else tossing and turning in their bed. He shuts his eyes, determined to get some sleep. Every time he does, however, a disturbing picture forms in his closed eyes. He sees a long stretch of shore like the scene from his afternoon walk. The shore is empty at first, then a man appears in the distance. The man is running, climbing over the groins and looking back anxiously every few seconds. He is clearly frightened and at the end of his strength as the man collapses and crouches under a groin. Something else appears far up the shore. The figure, in light-colored, fluttering draperies, approaches rapidly. It moves strangely, stopping at intervals and standing upright with arms raised, then running stooped across the beach. When it darts towards the groin, the runner is hiding under. Parkins always fails to keep his eyes shut. After a while, he gives up and lights a match. The noise and the light seem to startle some creatures, and he hears them scurry away from the side of his bed. He begins to read and, before long, falls asleep over the book. After breakfast the following morning, the maid brings an extra blanket and asks Parkins which bed he wants it to put on. 
Parkins is puzzled to learn that they had to make up both beds because the second bed was disordered as if someone had a poor night. Out on the golf course, Colonel Wilson comments on an extraordinary wind that they had during the night. Where he comes from, the colonel says to Parkins, people would say someone was whistling for it. Parkins tells the colonel that he is a strong disbeliever in the supernatural. He theorizes that the superstition about whistling for the wind comes from simple folk giving meaning to coincidences. Then he mentions that he himself was whistling during the night and tells the colonel about the artifact he found. Colonel Wilson advises Parkins to be careful about using such a thing. Mm. Yeah, like, don't blow a ground whistle. Good advice. Yeah, I would say so. After a full day of golf, Parkins and Colonel Wilson head back to the Globe together in the early evening. As they approach the inn, a boy runs into the colonel at full speed. He holds on to the colonel for dear life, then, after catching his breath, begins to howl. It appears the child was frightened by something while playing in front of the inn. From his description, Parkins and the colonel determined that there was a strange figure in white waving from the window of Parkins's room. Mm-hmm. They send the boy home and then go to the room to, the, to investigate. The door is locked. Parkins unlocks it with his key. The room is undisturbed, except for the second bed, which is in a twisted mess. The maid swears she has not been in the room since the morning. The landlord has the only spare key, and he and his wife assure Parkins that they did not give the key to anyone. The colonel is silent and pensive during and after dinner. He examines the whistle before retiring to his room and declares he would throw it into the sea if it were his. There are no blinds or curtains on the windows in Parkins' room, and he is forced to rig up a makeshift screen to keep the moonlight off his bed. He sleeps soundly for a while and then wakes to the noise of the screen collapsing. The moon shines directly on his face. He is pondering whether to reconstruct the screen when he hears something moving in the spare bed on the other side of the room. Parkins turns over to look and the noise stops. The commotion begins again. It grows till finally a figure sits up in what should have been an empty bed. Terrified, Parkins dashes to the window and picks up the stick he had used to prop up his screen. The figure spreads its arms and with a sudden smooth motion positions itself between the two beds, blocking Parkins' access to the door. Then it stoops over Parkins' bed and blindly gropes around. Finding the bed empty, the figure then moves forward and faces the window. In the moonlight, Parkins sees it has a horrible face of crumpled linen. Then the figure quickly moves into the middle of the room, groping and waving. Its draperies brush across Parkins' face, and the professor cries out. Instantly, the figure leaps towards him. Parkins backs up, screaming. He is halfway out of the window, with the linen face close to his own, when Colonel Wilson bursts open the door. By the time the colonel gets to the window, there is only Parkins left, with just a heap of bedclothes on the floor in front of him. Parkins collapses. The colonel gets him into his bed and spends the rest of the night in the spare bed. Rogers arrives at the Globe Inn the following morning, and the three men have a long meeting in Parkinson's room. Afterwards, Colonel Wilson leaves the inn carrying a small object and casts it into the sea. And that's where they leave it. Wow. I know. This one is super famous. It's told, it's like the most famous Christmas Eve ghost story that exists. Okay. And I'm interested to think, to hear what people think it means. Is, is it the wind? Did he whistle for the wind? Did he whistle for a scary entity? What did the whistle call? Right. Ooh. Right? Mm. I feel like it's very much left, a lot is left up to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Which makes it scarier. Yeah. The unknown. I know. And like, why was it sleeping in the bed next to him and just sat up in the middle of the night like Michael Myers? That's terrible. I hate that. I hate that thought immensely. Uh, But yeah, there you have it. Some scary ghost stories for everyone. Have a wonderful, wonderful, safe and happy holiday. Yes. And a happy new year. Mm -hmm. And we will be back on January 4th with a brand new episode. New case. Scary times. It'll be great. Spooky, scary, Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, toast? <laughs> toast. Our new patron, our Christmassy, elfy patron, is Amy Derrick. And she is a best fiend forever. Woo! Cheers, Amy. Yes, cheers. And tonight we will toast all of you. 
mm-hmm. our listeners, our fiends, our patrons, everybody out there who can hear our voice. Thank you for listening to us in 2021. And we hope to give you even more scarier, crazier, better, bigger, more awesome things in 2022. More bombastic shows. Yeah, that's a word you said. <laughs> so cheers. Cheers. And if we were visited by a ghost in an old haunted house, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Walk out onto the groins. Just take a walk on the groins. Spooky, scary Christmas time. <laughs>